Today, we will discuss the idea of divine providence in medieval Christian thought, which is in general just the idea, at least in the context of philosophy of history, the view of history as the unfolding of, of a divine plan. And this information is taken largely from a chapter of a book by Etienne Giesen called The Spirit of Medieval Philosophy, which is an old but a very good book, very brief and comprehensive summary of medieval philosophy, from at least from the Christian perspective. It is rather Christian-centric, but it's also a good survey of, of Christian medieval philosophy. There are a lot of strong similarities between uh, the idea of divine providence in Christian thought and, and Islamic thought, and indeed in medieval philosophy, Christian and Islamic thought were really two uh, discussants in a single conversation. They really were living in a largely similar universe and discussed the same kind of problems and even read thinkers from each other and discussed with each other sometimes. So <clears throat> a lot of what we're going to see here will be influenced by, for instance, St. Thomas Aquinas, who was uh, one of the greatest medieval Christian philosophers and theologians, uh, who was himself uh, greatly influenced by Islamic philosophers like uh, Ibn Rushd and uh, Ibn Sina, and uh, discusses them and mentions them, along with, of course, Aristotle, who was the, the big influence on all of these thinkers in the medieval period. So, to begin, Giesen starts off by referencing Plato and saying that Plato, where we find an early mention of the notion or idea of divine providence in Plato, and we find these points from Plato's Laws in Book 10. Plato says there that the gods are all-knowing and all-good. And it follows from that that nothing will be deprived of their care, <clears throat> whether it's great or small. And he also says there that everything in the universe is ordered. And everything in the universe, since the universe is, as a whole is ordered, every piece of the universe or everything within the universe is directed for the good of the whole. The same way that uh, every part of a body or an organism is put in its place for the sake of the whole and for the health of the whole body. So it follows from that, for Plato, that you're not made for your own sake. You don't exist for your own sake, but for the sake of the whole universe. And he also mentions or you know, alludes to a kind of a law of the universe according to which like attracts like, so that the good will be with the good and the evil with the evil. The good ultimately being, you know, conformity to the order of the whole, which exists for the good of the whole, and evil being, you know, nonconformity or rebellion against that order, right? Chaos. Yeah, so it's the difference between order and chaos. With Plato, the human being is subject to an impersonal cosmic law. So this order in the universe is something that's just there as part of the nature of the universe. And the role of the gods, right, who before, he remember, he has said, uh, have everything in their care and knowledge, yeah? whether it's great or small. Their role in the whole scheme is to enforce the law, right? They're like, the gods are, are part of the cosmos or in the cosmos, playing their role in the whole order right, which is to kind of be the enforcers and to, to care for everything and to keep things all in order. But in Christianity, uh, Giesen thinks there's a 
significant difference here in that we are sub we are all subject to one personal creator. So so God in Christianity is more like the one who makes the law, not just enforces the law. God is the outside the cosmos and the originator of the order of the cosmos, rather than a being within the cosmos who keeps things in order, who whose job is to keep things in order. Um so Whereas, so, so the ultimate reality or ordering force in the cosmos for Plato is impersonal. In Christianity, it's personal. There's a person. A God is a person. What do we mean by that, though? Well, we'll get to that later. Um, in any case, uh, since he is the creator and created everything from nothing, then he is also a chooser. Since creating from nothing is to choose something over nothing. So when we considered the possibility that nothing might have existed, but something actually does. Uh, and it seems then that both of them are equally possible, you know, scenarios. Then the requ we require the originator of the universe, right? Or let's say the deciding factor has to be something that chooses one from another. And essentially, when we think of a person, we think of a person, you know, like a chooser. So... Uh, I just got some snacks from the machine this morning because I was a little bit hungry before class. And, right, if I put the money in and I hit the button, then the granola bar comes out. So there's no real choice there because it's automatic. Uh, if I push the button, the machine doesn't get to think to itself, hmm, maybe I will give him a granola bar or maybe I'll, I'll give him nothing and then has to choose between these equal possible options, it automatically gives a granola bar. And that is why we consider the machine and not a person. Yeah, If I went to the store and I asked you know, somebody, can I have a granola bar? The person you know, can decide either to help me out and get me a granola bar or not to at all. And then because they have that capacity for choice, one might think, this what is what makes us think of that as a person rather than an object or a machine. So when we're talking about a creator who's personal rather than an impersonal kind of cosmic law, it's choice that we are really probably thinking about, right? And so we are conceiving here the creator or the basis of reality as a chooser. That's what we mean by saying a person here. Yep. <clears throat> so... God's being a chooser is, uh, and a, having will, in other words, is, is, is really an essential feature of this distinction between the Christian view of reality and the Platonic view of reality. Uh, so, as Giesen mentions, and this is the Christian perspective on it, uh, God chose uh, the, Israel, the, the Israelites, Bani Israel, out of all of humanity in the Torah. And then afterwards, he chose humanity out of the rest of the cosmos through Jesus and the gospel or the New Testament, um, as Christians call it. Right. So you guys know that uh, the Bible has the two parts. The Old Testament is actually the Torah, which then uh, Christians combined with the gospel, that's to say uh, reports of Jesus's life and letters written by the Apostle Paul to various churches were combined with the Torah to form the Bible, which has the Old Testament, which is the Torah, and then the New Testament, which is the, the story of Jesus and letters and things written after that. So the Christians have this kind of two-phase view of history, where 
based on choices that God made. So a choice is always of something out of out of the rest, right? So God's choosing uh, Bani Israel out of the rest of humanity, and then choosing humanity through Jesus. That's what they. That's in this case considered the significance or one of the significant uh, features of Jesus being that he represents this uh, second choice, the next phase in, in human history. So, yeah, that differs, you know, from, uh, I think, the Muslim perspective, right? We would be saying that God chose humanity from the very beginning, and it has always been that way. But that's just a difference in the interpretation of history. So, here, Giesen talks about the personhood of God in another aspect. The idea of God as having a loving relationship with his creatures. So, Giesen expresses it by saying, the creator veils his power behind his fatherhood. So, we have uh, the idea of a being who is at simultaneously the creator and controller of things and the chooser of whatever happens. That's to say God as the, the one with the power. And, and at the same time, having a kind of a loving relationship with uh, his creatures and the, you know, that he made. And the idea of the fatherhood of God is expressing this kind of relationship. So he says his will will be done because he is the maker, but also his will will be good for us because he is the quote unquote father, right? Of course, they don't mean that God is the, literally the father, but they mean rather figuratively that God has this loving relationship with his creation. Or we might say with her creation. Because we can note, right, even though mothers, uh, Muslims don't say father, Muslims don't say father to express this idea, but we say al-Rahman, and as I understand it, the word al-Rahman comes from Rahim, which means womb, and that sounds kind of like, right, as close as you would get to seeing a mother to refer to God rather than father. Of course, both Christians and Muslims agree that God is beyond any kind of biological gender. Metaphysically speaking, uh, God is being and his word. And he creates beings through his word. What do they mean by that? Well, if you recall, when we go back, uh, we think back to our um, intro to philosophy and also Islamic philosophy experience in those courses, we talked a lot about Plato and we talked a lot about form and matter, right? And we talked about essence and existence. And this is really where it comes down to with the essence and existence. God is the source of existence, and he's also the source of the essences of things. And he makes things exist, but he also gives them their specific forms and their whatnesses, their mahiya, right? The mahiyat, their whatnesses. He makes them the kinds of things they are. And well, you know, when we talk about the kind of thing something is, we describe it, right? That's its description. Uh -huh. And its description will be given in words. So it's natural that we would talk about God's word. God's word is his description of things, right? He gives them their existence and he gives them their description. He creates things through his word. And this is his knowledge of all things because he knows everything that he has created. And so that means he has in his knowledge the description of everything. It's his word. So we can see why the, the idea of God's word 
how it functions, right? It's the idea of his knowledge of things. And this all-encompassing divine knowledge is also the principle of creation of each thing. To be known by God is to be, and to be is to be known by God, right? So God knows everything, and you know, knowledge is of the real, remember, as Plato said a long time ago. So uh, God being the, the creator of everything, right? So whatever he knows will be what is real, and it will be real because he knows it, right? His knowledge is what gives it existence and gives it its whatness, its description. And this is divine providence, and it extends to every individual thing because God's knowledge is the source of the existence of what exists and what's real. Now, as opposed to uh, Aristotle, in contrast with Aristotle, who believed that there was matter, right, prime matter, or that matter is eternally is something that exists eternally and doesn't come to be, but rather things come to be out of matter. So for Aristotle, matter exists independently. And, and then the first cause is just the cause of the internal motion in matter of, you know, things coming to be and passing away from matter. Uh, but, but for Christianity, and, uh, and basically uh, this is more Platonic, but it's also the case with the monotheistic religions that conceive God as the creator that created out of nothing. There is no such eternal matter, but everything, the existence of everything depends on God. So, whereas for Aristotle, God is the, well, the first cause, like Aristotle's, you know, kind of God is the source of the forms of things, right? The universals. And matter is just this, this you know, independently existing principle of individuation. Things, in one individual being, or what, like I say, one individual horse is distinct from another individual horse because of its distinct matter, remember? Whereas the universal and form of horse that makes them both horses is, comes from God. It comes from, you know, the knowledge of God. But for Christianity, for Islam, uh, for Judaism, for the monotheistic viewpoint, usually, uh, since matter does not independently exist, but also depends on God, then the word of God doesn't describe only the knowledge of universals, but the but the very individuality of things, the description that makes you what you are and his knowledge is down to the minutest detail. It, whatever it is that makes you distinctly individual from another thing uh, is not something that is independent of God's knowledge. And you can see from uh, the idea that matter is the principle of individuation, it would follow that Whatever it is that makes you individually distinct from other humans would not be something that can be known because whatever can be known must be a form, must be a universal. Uh, so we have something different here that even the very individual details of each individual that exists uh, are, are objects of knowledge, are objects of God's knowledge. And there is no kind of what we might call dark matter but we mean that in a different sense than the contemporary physics uh, takes that term, right? But for Aristotle, matter must be dark, right? Since it's not something which is formal and therefore can't be something that's known. Mm -hmm. For this view, everything is light. The very existence of each individual is something which is intelligible and knowable.
Okay, so we get the idea of how the existence of everything follows from and comes from, arises from, depends on God's knowledge. Last thing to say here, at least as in uh, according to Giesen's account in his explanation, is the fact that God orders his creation for a purpose, for an end, and that purpose is himself, so that God's own perfection will be witnessed, as Giesen says. And this reflects a hadith that you might be familiar with, I think, where, uh, in which it says that God was a hidden treasure and he loved to be known, so he created. So God is the purpose of the existence of everything in creation. That's the end or purpose towards thing, which things are ordered. And the human is unique in that order, right? Because the human being is ordered, but we also order towards ends. Human beings make use of other things and instru as instruments for our own purposes. So we understand the idea of ordering something toward a purpose because we are beings which order things toward purposes, right? Not the chair, not the desk, you know, not the rocks. Yeah, and probably not the animals, but the human beings are the ones that project projects and aims and purposes and objectives and goals. And we then order things toward them. <clears throat> so in this way, the human being is more analogous to God than other things, more like God than the other things. The other things are, you know, we can say, quote unquote, like God, only in the fact that they exist. And also God exists. But humans are also like God in this other way, that we choose ends and order things according to those ends. We can ask ourselves, what is the good? What, what should I look for? What should I value? What should I try to accomplish and aspire to? And how, should, how can I get it? We have free will. Even though you know, nothing is like God at all, and God is infinitely different from everything else, because God exists independently of everything else, and everything else depends on God to exist. But still, somehow, there's this different kind of sense in which human beings are analogous to God. The human is the being that God selected to witness his perfection. Because the good is to witness God's perfection. That's what the essence of the, of the good is. And everything that is good is good uh, in as much as it is a kind of witnessing of God's perfection or in some way participates or, uh, you know, um, leads to this witnessing. To seek the good and to order one's life to it is a kind of imitation of God's ordering of the cosmos toward the good. So God is the essential good. He's per perfect. And what's good for creation is to witness God's perfection. That's to fulfill the purpose of creation, right? To be that witness. And everything that is good to a lesser degree in the world, like, you know, the granola bar that I just ate, for example. It was good, right? So the idea here is that the goodness of that is really just a kind of a reflection of, you know, goodness with a capital G, right? God's goodness. And it's good in as much as it uh, sort of leads up to this witness of witnessing of the perfection. That's why I'll eat it and I'll say, Alhamdulillah, right? Because the, I witness the goodness in it and then I link it to God and that sort of, you know, completes its goodness completes the experience of its goodness and its purpose because it's the goodness of having eaten it leads me to bear witness to God's goodness. And in doing so, I'm kind of, you know, 
imitating, like he says here, trying to sort of conform or shape myself to be a kind of reflection of God's ordering of the cosmos toward the good. And every detail of the life of every one of us, every individual is known to God from eternity and therefore made by God from eternity since he's knowing it and his creating it are the same. And that's where even though there's this analogy and kind of similarity, you might say, between God and humans, there's also this infinite difference because it's the fact that God knows what's happening with us uh, that is the actual source of the existence and the reality of what's happening with us, right? God's knowledge of us is the very source of the and the core of the reality of us, right? But for us, our knowledge of things is caused by the things, right? It's caused by what's real. God's knowledge is the cause of the reality of what's real, but our knowledge is the effect of the reality of what's real. So they're completely on opposite poles. Uh, and yet there's this um, kind of relation that we talked about here, where the human being is the one who has ends and orders things and order, we order our lives to those ends. And so history, human history, on this point of view, will naturally be understood as a kind of a process whereby humans as a collective either order ourselves uh, in such a way that imitates God's ordering of the cosmos or fail to. And perhaps it might be understood as a sort of process whereby we progressively uh, become closer and closer to such an order. Or alternatively, we might understand it as a progressive falling away from an order that is an imitation of God's order. Or alternatively, a third, a third case is that it's a sort of cyclical process whereby human beings order themselves in a way which approximates more closely God's order and then, you know, fall away and, and sort of fall into uh, an alternative order, which is uh, basically uh, a chaos, right? Going back to the root of it here when Plato talks about the universe being ordered as a whole and there being a sort of, you know, polarity between that which conforms to the order of the universe, which is the good, and that which, you know, violates and, you know, opposes the order of the universe, which is evil. So there we have divine providence. And uh, every kind of notion of history operating according to some kind of system will reflect or, you know, seems to have this inheritance they can say the inheritance of Plato, the idea that history is a, a kind of an unfolding of a plan, right? A system, whole system.